in Moab prophecy. <laughs> 15 was the judgment, destruction against Moab. Now the advice for Moab. 16, 1 through 5. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mouth of the daughter of Zion. It shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the, ex- for the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice, and hastening righteousness. Okay, this is a little cryptic also, but I take this as advice from Isaiah, or from the Lord, to Moab, as to what they should do. They should send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. And I believe that goes back to a passage in 2 Kings chapter 3 when Israel uh, dominated the country of Moab. And in 2 Kings 3, 4, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. And so the advice of the Lord for the Moabites is to send the tribute land, lamb again and appeal for asylum to Israel. That in their distress, their only hope was with the people of God. As you see them fleeing in verse 2, as you see them trying to reach safety, they should request in verses 3 and 4 that... God's people uh, give them shelter and refuse all requests for extradition. That the hope of these refugee Moabites would be with God's people. And, And that that's what he's encouraging them to ask Israel or Judah for was for them to let their fugitives be with them and hide them and grant them asylum. Because in fact, the hope and the refuge for all peoples, verse 5, is God's throne and the judge that sits in faithfulness and justice and righteousness on God's throne. The only real hope for anybody is in the Lord and His anointed one, His Messiah, in His Zion. And so I think ultimately this is a messianic prophecy or passage encouraging Moab that their real ultimate hope was in the descendant of David that would rule with justice and righteousness. That's the hope of every people is the Lord and his Messiah that uh, we see in, in the New Testament. So my take on this is Here's what you ought to do, Moab. You ought to turn to God's people and to the Messiah that the Lord will bring through them. Comments and questions? Yes? Would the Moabites and the other nations have access to Isaiah's message? Not necessarily. I don't think that the main point of this, this is advice to the Moabites, but it's for Israel to read the advice they're giving to the Moabites. Giving to the Moabites. So really, I think it's trying to show Israel that the hope of every nation is not in alliances, but is in the Messiah that God was going to bring through them. You know, I think the whole issue here is really to communicate to Israel that that they ought to trust in the Lord. So if the Moabites' real hope was in the Lord then that's a lesson to them. So I don't know that the Moabites would have had, had access to that. That's a good good question. And I think the point of this is for the Israelites. Other questions? Comments? To change speakers several times? Apparently, yes. How you would have to interpret that? Yes. In fact, in my translation it does. It gives, uh, puts verses 3 and 4 
uh, the first couple lines in quotation marks. So my translation sees it as cheers. That's cryptic, but it's the best I know how to do with that. And it makes sense, I think, in the context. Jake? Uh, I'm just making sense just, you know, not just for, for Moab, but for us, for any nation, that you know, when we become part of spiritual Israel, and that's our only hope, is to be led to be, uh, as it were, sojourners in Israel, and to be led to take refuge in God's people, as we become part of spiritual Israel. And so I'm just, this is just a pattern. Uh, I mean, politically, this isn't a pattern for all the nations, but this idea uh, is a pattern for all of us. It's yes. to take hope in, in the Messiah. Absolutely. Sure. Do we know, are we going to find out later if they did take this or not? Yes. Other questions? The end of the extortioner is who's speaking about whom? Yeah. Keep up with all of them. Well, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that either, other than if they are in the in Zion and with the Lord, then God will take away the oppressor, the extortioner, the destruction, and give them security and safety. Same as the destroyer. Same. I think so. Yeah, I think saying you know kind of parallel statements. Shane. And again in verse six. Yeah, and that's going to be the answer. That's how they're going to respond. We haven't read it yet, but yeah. Alright, other thoughts? Well, you know what I did. I didn't bring my, down all my notes, so after a while I'll have to go and get some more. But anyhow, for now. Um, any other comments through five? <coughs> Alright, 6 through uh, 14. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail. For the foundations of fear, fear you shall mourn. Surely they have spoken. For the fields of Heshbon languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out, they are gone over the sea. Therefore I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elielah. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvests. Gladness is taken away, and joy from the plentiful field and the vineyards. There will be no more singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out the wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab, and my inner being for Kir Harris. And it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that very multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So the solution for Moab is to turn to the Lord and his people, to trust in them, and to appeal for help. But what keeps Moab from doing that? Pride. Just how proud is Moab? He's known for his pride. <laughs> you know, really, really proud. You got them? Kyle, you're a good man. Now I know what else I believe about this. Got a hand every once in a while. Um, and what would pride, I mean, how would pride keep them from taking advantage of the opportunity to request asylum from God's people? You don't ask for help in your pride because you think you can do it yourself. Exactly. (coughs) Self-sufficient. Now, look over at Jeremiah, if you want to, 48, verse 29. 48-29 of Jeremiah, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness 
his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. What does that sound like to you? Pretty, pretty proud, don't you think? Um, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and it's talking about Moab and Ammon. And in verse 10, he mentions this they will have in return for their pride, because they've taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. And we'll see some other passages as we go on. This is not the last time we'll see Moab. But, but Moab's national characteristic seems to be pride. So you don't ask for help, and you don't receive help. You are doing it on your own. Well, doing it on their own, how did it go for Moab? How would it go for Moab? As well as it did yeah, which was? Terrible. What happens in Moab here? Well, they, they thought they could do it themselves, so now they're wailing for themselves. No one else will wail for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they have a lot to wail about. Because what's being affected here in this judgments against Moab? You know there's a common theme in 7 through 10? Famine and what specific product is especially affected? The, yes, the, the grapes. You see the secondary product of the grapes, like the raisin cakes in verse 7. You see their, uh, you know, uh, vines themselves in verses 8 and 9. You see in verse 10 the festivities associated with the harvest of the grapes. But now it's over. No no vines, no grapes, no harvest. It's devastating, the famine that comes upon Moab. To the point where, again in verse 11, it really hurts Isaiah to see how bad things are for Moab. And what does Moab try to do in verse 12? Appeals to his gods. Yes. How effective is that? Wears him out. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, doesn't help you bet to appeal to pagan gods, but that's the only thing he knows to do. So he cries for help to these idols, and that does nothing. The Lord's word is, verse 14, within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population and be left a small remnant. That seems like a kind of an odd expression. Within three years, as a hired man would count them. So how does a hired man count three years? Very exactly. Why? Well, you're working hard every day and you want to know when that time period's up. I mean, that would be one thought, or, or maybe how much you're going to be paid. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, some of you, uh, like, have a 40-hour work week, you know, you work 8 to 5 or whatever. What happens at 5 o'clock and 1 second? <laughs> Yeah, stop paying me for this. <laughs> Not how a hired man does. You give what you have to give in service and then you're out of there. So the hired man would count the three years very exactly. He watches the clock to make sure he doesn't work a second over what he has to. So within three years and no more, Moab will already be greatly brought down. Not destroyed completely, but they will already have their glory degraded. Logan. The fact that uh, they have to work for themselves reminds me of in uh, first Peter the first part of uh, verse 20 of 1 Peter 2 it says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? Because that, that's probably the exact reason that there's no way to mourn for Moab because they deserve it. And I think that's a good lesson for us that we can't we can't uh, be punished for our parents, for example, whenever they discipline us, don't feel sorry for us feeling that pain because because we knew that we'd be disciplined if we did it. And I think that's the same thing for us in our Christian lives. We can't expect people to feel sorry for us when we get what we deserve. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? 
On 16. Mindy. Can you explain your spreadsheet? Can I do what? Explain it. This is the word your spoke earlier concerning Moab. Well, it's apparently is some prophecy that had been previously made. Like? Right before this. Yeah, I think so. Okay, and then in verse 14, it's supposed to be a contrast? Because, like, my version says, but now, the Lord speaks, like, is it going to be different? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer. Maybe so. Maybe he's saying, maybe he's saying 6 through 12 is the word that was spoken earlier, and now, here's what he's saying. Okay. Maybe that's the case. Right. Um, just said, if Moab felt as badly about Israel as Israel felt about Moab, the last thing that they would ever want to do is to ask Israel for help. <laughs> That's a good point. It's really hard to humble yourself to your enemies, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Other thoughts. It's hard to ask for help. We mentioned someone mentioned earlier because we think we can do it ourselves, but it's hard to ask even if you don't think you can do it yourself. <laughs> because you point. don't want them to know you don't think you can do it yourself. <laughs> Our pride is really foolish, isn't it? I mean, how much we hurt ourselves because we are so proud. Just really, uh, wow. Humility is such a fine quality and so rare. John? So the other side of that, when people ask us for help, do we look at it from a humble perspective as well? Or do we say, oh, I come in the name for help? You know, uh, I think we have that attitude. Yeah. Sure. We, I, I'll tell you, the devil appropriates every possible opportunity to try to tempt us to pride. About the time we feel like we've started to humble ourselves pretty good. <laughs> so that's uh, another one. He'll bless us if he has to to get us to <laughs> turn around. Yeah, that's right. <coughs> Same. Um. Did I understand you in saying in your 14 that it's almost like God, God is saying three years on the dot? Yeah. Three years and no more. Within three oh, years, okay. not three and a half, not four, within three years. So he's not saying like three like three years on to this day. Okay. That's the maximum. Okay. Other questions and comments? In verse 9 and verse 11, is, is this God being able to call the Moab in some way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know when, you know, Isaiah stops and God begins. But I would sort of take this as, as Isaiah and God here. Actually, you know, seeing the devastation of Moab as being so severe that even though they deserved it and all of that, it actually grieves them to have to witness it. So it's not so much that that, it, that they have this really personal contact with those people as much as it's just so severe. I think this is a way of showing how severe it will be. If it gets so bad that even Isaiah and the Lord himself grieve, it must be really bad. I think in context, that's almost the reason for these statements. And what happened to Moab? Was it um, Assyria? Apparently. Apparently. I can't tell you anything historically about that. Did you say it didn't really go into detail as much as it did on like, Babylon and Assyria? How they Some of these will be a lot less detailed than this, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, he... I don't think the point of these things is so much to give historical details or exactly what will happen as to teach us the lessons. You know, to teach us that if you don't trust in God, if your pride makes you self-sufficient, what's going to happen? And that's a lesson for Israel because isn't that what they're trying to do? They keep falling into this prideful thing where they try to do it themselves. They need to learn a lesson from Moab. You know, I think so much of this, you know, we would be more focused maybe on trying to know all the historical details, but the point doesn't depend on that. You know, you can see the lesson that we need. Other questions and comments? Sometimes we're more interested in the history lesson than the moral lesson. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. No, definitely God thinks it's a lesson we need more than once. 
Yeah, like more than twice and more than three times. <coughs> Humble yourselves. Alright. Next oracle. <coughs> Chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. A oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruler. The cities of a, ro- a ruler are forsaken and will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to fight them. The fortified city will disappear from Egypt and sovereignty from Damascus. And the remnant of Aram, they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord Holy. Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will even it, it will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the year. Or it will be like one gleaning, gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet the gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives in the topmost row. Four or five on the branches of the fruit of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. So this oracle at least begins against who? Damascus was a city in what country? Syria, also known as Aram. So when we looked at our map yesterday, Aram, Syria is up here. Um, and it doesn't look good. Damascus is about to be removed, fall in ruin, the city's forsaken, the flocks, well, the flocks are doing well. It's, oh, and it's good for the animals, it means it's bad for the people. You know, and uh, the fortified city disappears from Ephraim, sovereignty, Ephraim, verse 3. But is Ephraim, Syria? Yes! Do you remember back in chapter 7 where Israel and Syria had made the alliance and came against Judah? So this prophecy against Syria actually incorporates Israel into it. It's a real shame for Israel that they're classed here with Syria as a foreign nation in these prophecies against the nations. They're grouped together with this pagan country. And he in fact says in the end of verse 3 that Damascus will be like the glory of the sons of Israel. That is, it will go into shame and disgrace and disappear. So he groups Syria and Israel here in their judgment. And 4 through 6 is mostly Israel. You know, the glory of Jacob will fade, the fatness of his flesh will become lean, and they'll just leave only a handful behind. Two or three olives in the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a tree, practically the whole nation of Israel will be wiped out. So, this is really a judgment passage against Aram and Israel together. Comments and questions. Isn't there isn't there kind of an example uh, in Second Kings of, of how after the people were uh, taken away, there were so few people left that the lions were attacking in Israel. That happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, when 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 it's good for the animals, it's bad for the people. <laughs> Shane. I think it's so significant. I think it's ironic that. He groups these two these two countries together as they as they they group themselves together. Chapter seven. I think. Well, I think of when he does this, almost like in chapter seven, verse uh, seven or eight, how he says, "Your plan will not stand. This won't work against my people." He's almost saying, "Now here's my plan for you. Let's see if this one works out." Well, and think about the lesson. If you don't want to be with the world in the judgment, don't be with the world in in your in your activity. You know, you do what they do. Don't be surprised when God will just judge you right along with them. Other comments? 
7 through 11. In that day, man will have regard for his Maker, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. And he will not have regard for the altar, for the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the ashram and the incense stands. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest, or like branches with which they abandoned before the sons of Israel. And the Lord will be a desolation, and the land will be a desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants, and set them with vine slips of a strange God. And that in the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. And in the morning you bring your seed to blossom. But the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. Okay. Well... Um, you're going to learn something, guys. Verse 7, what are they going to learn? 7 and 8. Respect for God. Yeah, absolutely. Trust in God and turn to Him, and not to... (coughs) The guys you've made yourself. (laughs) Makes sense? (laughs) You know, it's so foolish to have regard for our own creation, our own accomplishment, that's no greater than we are. So the judgment that God's going to bring against Israel is going to cause them to realize we should look to the Lord and not to ourselves. Because in that day, verse 9, the strong cities will be like forsaken places. The land will be a desolation because they had forgotten the God of their salvation. They'd forgotten the rock of their refuge. They'd been carefully, uh, you know, planting their own delightful plants to a strange God. And it was going to bear a harvest that would be devastating. The fact that they hadn't trusted in God, that they were trusting in their own work, their own efforts, their own gods, led to disaster, which would cause them to turn back and see they ought to trust in the Lord and not in themselves. Are they going to... um, you know, rely on their strong cities, verse 9, or verse 10, the rock of their refuge. So often man relies on his cities, his gods, his achievements, his accomplishments, everything he does, and that ends in disaster. That ought to cause us to learn the lesson, turn to and trust in God. Comments and questions? So you think that this is them realizing just too late yeah, I think so. I think God brings the judgment, then it's like, oh, uh, we made a mistake there, didn't we? Everybody realizes that at some point in time. Logan. Uh, I have a footnote here on the ashram that says it was a wooden image signifying a female deity. So was, was that like an altar or was it a god? It's supposed to be some kind of female god or... That was a part of their pagan idolatry, the Baals, the Asherah, Asherim, I don't know. I don't know a lot about those details, maybe somebody does. But I, I have heard that Asherim was a goddess, but I don't know if that was correct or not. I don't know the answer to that. It is a goddess, but it's, it's the name of a goddess, but it's also used to refer to Canaanite gods and goddesses in general. Okay. Thank you. Um, you started talking about the, what they had done. They had forgotten God. <coughs> then is jump to the present tense, or, or what does it mean? Well, it's still the present tense in the first part of 10 in the New American Standard. You have forgotten the God of yourself. You have not remembered, therefore you plant. Okay. Uh, is it different in the. I was just wondering, based on verse uh, 7, does that just mean they, they know right from wrong, but that doesn't really stop them? Well, I think 7 and 8 is what they're going to learn from the judgment, from the punishment. From what happens after? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. When, when all these terrible things happen, they're going to learn they shouldn't have done this. They should have trusted God, not themselves. 
and is the image of the end of verse 10 that they have a crop that's better than what God had planned for them and they they put their stock in that, they invest in that, and then when it grows up, it yeah, they're trying to do it themselves. They're trying to plant their own plants and, you know, provide their own salvation, and it's going to end up in disaster for them. Other thoughts? end of this, in 12 to 14, it, there's, it's not another oracle, but it's clearly, uh, there's a gap, and this is, another, this is another thing he's saying. And I really like 12 to 14. Some parts of the Bible are meant to be read out loud. And I think this is a passage. Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, there's terror. Before morning, there no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. You've got, you know, separate um, scenes here. In 12, in the first part of 13, what do you see? (coughs) Yes, and how noisy are they? Yes. Powerful, roaring, rumbling as these nations are very uh, uh, boisterously, you know, do all these things. You see, man, I mean, these nations come together and, and they, they flex their muscles and it's just roaring and rumbling like the crashing of waves against the breakers. It's powerful. And then what happens? God rebukes them and yeah, they're gone. Chased like chaff before the mountains uh, in the wind, or in the mountains before the wind. You know, the wind just blows them off, like, like you know, straw, like dust. They're gone, they're nothing. <laughs> All these powerful nations who were making so much noise, at God's rebuke, it's over. Or as he describes in 14, at evening time, behold, terror. Whoa, it's horrible. It's frightening. Panic City. Before morning? No more. By the way, I do this because I've been in Brazil. This is their expression for... (laughs) I always can't keep up with where I'm at. Uh, So, they're gone. It's it's a pretty useful, you know, gesture. Uh, So you all can use that. We can introduce this in in America, you know. You get a little, little Brazilianized. So you know, you see, you see the picture at evening, and the roar is deafening. Before morning, God's wiped them out. Guess what I think this refers to? Yes, Isaiah thirty-seven, thirty-six, when God sends a single messenger. And in one night, kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The rumbling, the roaring, the terror. And before morning, they decided they better go home. And they don't come out again for a while. That's what God does by his rebuke. Or by sending a spare angel down. Don't be intimidated by the nations. Don't be afraid of their roaring and their rumbling. Trust God. He's the one who controls the nations. How many times in the Bible, sometimes we ought to catalog this, how many times in the Bible are we told not to fear men? All over the place. What's our problem? We fear men. 
We want acceptance, we want approval, we want them to like us, we want them to think we're whatever. And we're trying to fit in, we're trying to please them, we're trying to suck up to them. When what we ought to do is please God, fear Him. He's the one who deals with the nations. We ought to care less all the roaring and rumbling they want to do. When God decides to say a word, they'll be like chaff in the wind. They amount to nothing. And here we are trying to please them. Trying to get their approval and attention. Yeah, it felt pretty bad when the Assyrians conquered the whole Judean countryside and surrounded Jerusalem. You know, you'd think they were going to win. They're going to win unless God decides for them to. All God has to do is, like I say, send down one messenger. How many angels does God have at his disposal, do you suppose? You know, I mean, what if he needed to, you know, send down, a, you know, a hundred angels and uh, defeat 185 million in one night? I don't know. I mean, it may have been that that one angel could have done more. It's just all the soldiers they had, you know. <laughs> I don't know if that really exhausts the work that an angel can do in one night, but I know God's got a whole lot more to say. It just, you know, we've got to be impressed with the power of God. And, he, and he, he identifies this, he captions it at the end of verse 14. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us, the lot of those who pillage us. Here's what's going to happen to our enemies. Trust God, don't worry about them. It makes no difference, they're nothing. We need to have this kind of faith and trust in God. We need to be impressed with the power of the Lord. And not with the power of the roaring, rumbling nations who are nothing but dust. The roaring, rumbling school friends or teachers or job associates or governmental officials or whatever. It makes no difference. They're nothing. Compared to God, they're absolutely zero. Don't worry about them. Serve God. Comments and questions? Another example of human pride that God humbles. human basis for pride than they do and even their pride was uh, brought low overnight good point other thoughts on chapter 17 you mentioned the beginning of the country that Damascus was in or Aram, Syria. Syria. And the order of Assyria way over to the right. And then Syria, which was Aram. Yes. Okay. And then Israel, then Judah. Yes. All those at the same time? Were they, was that current Assyria and Syria? Yes. They were both there at the same time until the Assyrians conquered Syria and Israel. Okay. Yes. But they were. Yes. Other comments? Shane. That brings up what Chris said about the question also, if you don't mind. Uh, is there any certain reason why you guys resort to weak? Or is it just saying, is he going from like strong to weak? Or is he creating. I have seen a multitude of attempts to explain the organization of the, this section of the prophecies against the nations. Several of them are intriguing. They've not, any of them convinced me yet. I suspect there is an order. But, uh, man. There are a lot of elaborate explanations and I don't know what they are. I mean, you can see this. Maybe I could say this and this is a fair statement. It may not amount to much. But the previous two are Philistia and Moab that were in the southwest and the southeast. 
here's Israel and Syria that are in the north. And we went from south to the north. But that doesn't really help much. You know, so, but there are lots and lots of ways of trying to organize these judgment prophecies and trying to figure out how they fit together. Jamie. Is there a reason for 12 through 14 being here? I mean, it seems like this general principle replaced any number of these pastors and oracles. Yeah, there must be, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. It reminds me a lot. Now, you know, while we're thinking about this just general idea, uh, you know this passage, but it's so cool. Psalm 2. When the nations all banded together to rebel against God, he who sits in the heavens laughs. laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, doesn't bother to even get up. <laughs> he doesn't need to. And you see what he does to devastate their plot to you know, overthrow God's government. I mean, you know, do you think human beings ever scare God? Psalm 46.6, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. <laughs> That's a pretty good passage, Psalm 46.6. <laughs> all it takes is God to uh, raise his voice a little, and all these uproarious kingdoms melt. Other thoughts? It's kind of interesting. Uh, Peter refers to Satan as a roaring lion, and you know, it's just nothing more than just the roaring. If we just trust in the Lord. Good point. Kind of a hollow roar, JD. Uh, I was thinking more about the placement of these. Uh, maybe it's in the middle, I and mean, it's kind of in the midst of all these things with the nations. Maybe this is kind of the, the center. Maybe not of a greater neat little structure, but just kind of in the middle saying the moral of all these oracles is the nations come to nothing. Be careful, careful, J.D. Who do you find in a chiasm in there? <laughs> oh, several have found various ones, but I don't know. I, I, that's maybe so. I, I would really like to discover the secret for the organization of this passage, but I don't know. I mean, I can come. I've seen, read some things. I thought, yeah, it's cool, but none of them really convicted me yet. So. <laughs> I'd be nice to know if there is one, but you're right. We get the same point. Anything else on 17? 18. Ah, uh, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of the Kush, which sent ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches lops off and clears away. They shall, all of them, be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people near and feared near and far, from a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, place in the name of the Lord of hosts. Intriguing chapter, somewhat cryptic, and there's no oracle starting it, which is kind of different. I don't know exactly what to make of that. But... Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. Lying beyond the rivers of Cush would be what territory? Ethiopia, Ethiopia, also known as Cush. And he calls it the land of whirring wings. Why? Okay, you're on the right track. Do you know the particular insect that this region is widely known for? 
Some of you, somebody ought to know. Scared? This is down in, in Africa. Some of, some of you have heard of this. I don't know how to pronounce it. The Tetsi fly? Isn't that right? Tetsi fly? T-S-E, T-S-E, however that is. The Tetsi fly is a very common in that region. I suspect that's why he talks about the whirring wings on one side. But I think he's got more... Uh, to say in that than just you know talking about the insects that are common to that region. I think he's using that as a symbol of the Ethiopian uh, mentality and procedure here. Because look at what Ethiopia was doing in the first part of verse 2. What were they doing? Sending envoys, sending the ambassadors here, there, and yonder. How? In boats and papyrus vessels across the lands. Now, I'm, wow, this is cryptic. I, I feel pretty comfortable with this explanation, but I've read plenty of others, so you may not have the same one. I suspect this is still in this time period of the Assyrian threat. And that the Ethiopians were getting in the middle of this, sending their ambassadors all over the place, trying to rally a group of nations together to present a united front against Assyria. And so you see them sending these envoys as the, the frantic, hustle-bustle, restless activities of the Ethiopians who are sending messengers, probably even to Hezekiah, and to other kings trying to rally the troops against Assyria. I see verses 1 and the first half of verse 2 as a description of what Ethiopia was doing. And then the end of verse 2 as sort of the God's answer to these ambassadors. He calls them swift messengers. Kind of goes along with the whirring wings. Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. In other words, I think God intercepts these ambassadors, at least in the prophecy, and sends them back. Says, go swift messengers back to this nation tall and smooth, back to the people feared far and wide. I think he's talking about Ethiopia. You know, the, the Ethiopia is sending out these messengers right and left, hurrying here, there, and yonder across the seas, trying to get all this coalition put together. And God intervenes and says, ah, go back. Go back with the message of three to six to your land. Well, you know, humor me here in this and see what you think when I get done. Uh, in three, all you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. As soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus the Lord has told me. I will look from my dwelling place quietly. Like dazzling heat in the sunshine. Like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms, and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives, and remove and cut away the spreading branches and leave them for the birds and the beasts and all that. Now, I think you're seeing God's message back to Ethiopia as a great contrast. You see, the, on the one hand, the whirring wings... The sending out of the swift messenger ambassadors on papyrus vessels over the water. On the other hand, you see God looking quietly. God is not so frantic. He's more serene. He's calm. He's composed. And he compares God's action with two things. In verse 4, what does he compare God's action with? Dazzling heat and sunshine. Now, the heat of the sun, is it very active and hustle bustle and all of that? Well, no, not just that, but how does the heat get here? 
You know, is it being sent on fast boats? How, do, how does the heat come? No fanfare, no. Well, yeah, it just sort of radiates. It's extremely effective. We don't really know the heat of the sun. Get up in the north of Brazil, where the sun is so much more direct. Wow. You know, I've never been in a place where the sun is so direct as it is in some parts of Brazil. Even some parts around Sao Paulo at certain times of the year. Depends on when you're at. Um, but wow, that, that, that heat, the, the, the effect of that sun. I mean, in some parts of Brazil, it's like, wow. The difference between the sun and the shade is enormous in how you feel. Especially around noon or, or in the, the late morning hours. And... Uh, but, but, but you don't see it doing anything. The sun just shines. The heat just radiates. Extremely effective and impactful, but so calm. Or what's the other thing he compares God's activity with? Love the dew. The dew. I love that one. You ever been out on a, you know, cool morning uh, when uh, it's been a cloudless night and there's quite a bit of humidity, how much dew is there? <coughs> how wet does it get things? Really wet. Really wet. You ever walked in tennis shoes through the through the lawn? Whoa, man! It gets soaked. You ever wonder how that happens? You ever seen that strong shower of dew coming down? How did dew get there anyway? What? <laughs> yeah. It's the bizarrest thing. I don't know anything else that'll get it all wet and it never happens. You know, it never comes. I mean, you know, it just, it just, wow. It's just, a, it's really bizarre. Because everything else we know about, you know, getting something wet, you pour it out, or you sprinkle it on, or you do, the dew, it just, it just, you never see anything happen, and suddenly everything's all soaked. That's God. That's a great illustration for what the Lord does. No pomp, no pageantry, no fanfare, no hustle bustle, no hurried up activity, and yet, it, changes the world radically. God's methods of operation are not the whirring wings and the swift messengers and the papyrus boats. God's methods of operation are the heat of the sun and the humidity of the dew. But it's effective because he takes and he takes the have you ever seen these? we got weed eaters but back when I was a boy my dad owned the landscaping company and we took these little gizmos that you cut the grass around the light poles and the trees and so forth with a little I don't know what do you call those things they were bigger than scissors they were yeah little trimmer things when you do that it close the blade you know I don't even know how to use a weed eater all I know how to use is those little gizmos but that's what he's that's what he's saying. You know, he, he takes a little one of those deals and he clips off the sprigs. It's all it takes for the Lord. You know, let's say you got the Assyrian nation, well, you just, you know, clip it clip it back. And leave it for the birds and the beasts. Now, here is Ethiopia going to all this great extent and great uh, uh, expenditure of energy for what God's going to do almost unnoticed. I don't suppose anybody even saw that angel that night. <laughs> Woke up and there's 185,000 dead Assyrians. <laughs> God just does it so calmly, so easily. I mean, you look at God's methods. If you wanted to send the Savior of the world into the world, Savior... sounded weird. But anyhow, you want to send him in the world, what are you going to do? You're going to give a peasant girl a baby in her womb that's born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem? <laughs> With nobody even there to witness it other than maybe a few animals? 
You know, and then you're going to give an announcement to some shepherds with their flocks nearby. <laughs> that, that, that's going to come into the world. Is that what you do? It's just so calm. It's so, wow. There's, it's so not impressive. God doesn't do things with impressive methods. He does things with effective methods. They're tempted to trust all the stuff they can see. All the impressive activity. All human works. No, trust God. You can't even see him. You don't even know how it got there. You know, just tell me how that dude gets on those all the vegetation. It's an amazing event. But it's there. And it's strong. That's the way God is. He doesn't do it like we would do it. He acts and it's, wow, it's effective. That's what I see. I really like that. But you may have a different take. So, comments and questions through verse 6. I guess they were smooth skinned people. <laughs> I don't know. We're very pimply, I don't know. Do I Kyle? Big what? Okay, cool. Smooth ones, I guess. (laughs) But I think the point is in your model, he's he's in verses 1 and 2, he's describing the people who are carrying out this somewhat frantic mission of the Ethiopians. They, They have people, and you have to describe these people, what they look like, what their skin is like. And then God steps in to work his deed, and who does it? Well, I don't know. Nobody does. It's just done. So you've got description versus action. Yeah, and the Ethiopians are sort of exotic. You know, I mean, they're kind of impressive because they're kind of remote and they're tall and smooth. I don't know. The Ethiopian nation, I think so. The land divided by the rivers. They were powerful? Yeah, I guess. Then why are they scared of Assyria? Everybody's scared of Assyria. They're the superpower. They're they're gonna blitzkrieg the whole place. <laughs> yes. Who did they oppress? The Ethiopians dominated the Egyptians from time to time. Who did who oppress? <clears throat> oh, powerful and impressive nation? I don't know. The, Ethio- the Ethiopians sometimes did conquer Egypt from time to time. As I understand it. So what's the message to Ethiopia? I mean, this isn't... Don't, worry, don't, don't do all this stuff. God will take care of it. That's it. I think that's what he says. You know, you know, quit wasting your, uh, you know, papyrus boats. I think the message again is really for Israel, that all the Ethiopians are doing is useless. God will take care of it in His own way, in His own time. So it's really He's sending them back in the prophecy, but really the lesson is for God's people to learn: trust God, don't trust these frantic preparations of the Ethiopians or anybody else that comes along and wants you to join this alliance. Uh, I think this points out one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to trust God. It's like we're talking about: you can see the other nations, yes, but it's harder to see God's working. And so the temptation is just to want to respond directly to what other nations are doing and want to do something instead of just trusting in God who's harder to picture, who's harder to imagine, and move things up to him and his working which you can't really see. Amen. Yes. And so in verse 7, at that time a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from the Ethiopians. They will end up coming to the Lord and bringing their gift to the Lord. Remind you of anything? About Acts 8. The Ethiopian who comes to God. 
So that would be a specific illustration of that. Alright, comments and questions on chapter 18. Well, you guys look like you need a break, so uh, we'll do that. And we've gotten through three more chapters, so that's cool. I know there's a lot to absorb. It's a lot to think about. It's hard to keep concentrating. But before I take you take a break, let me tell you this. And it's still really impressive and encouraging that you'll do this. It reminds me so much of Porto Alegre in Brazil. 